The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, a very good morning to all. You're watching Squawkbox with the magnificent Jeffrey Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. So, U.S. inflation, well, it lessened from December, but it was still hotter than expected, starting 2023 at 6.4%, signalling that price pressures could prove more stubborn than many had hoped for. Global sentiment, though, well, doesn't know what to do with it, really, taking a bit of a turn as key Fed speakers respond with a more hawkish tilt, with only the Nasdaq uh, of the major indices managing to close in the green. Taiwan's semiconductor sells off as new 13F filings show Berkshire Hathaway cut its stake in the chipmaker by over 85% while adding to its holdings of Apple. And LVMH appoints musician Pharrell Williams to lead its menswear design unit, the first major hire by the fashion group's newly appointed CEO, while investors await the latest numbers from rival Kering due this hour. Good morning, my old buddy. How Good are you? Good morning. Yeah, very well, thank you. I, I've been pontificating, cogitating, okay. and really ruminating some very deep and meaningful things. Masticating, even. Uh, well, perhaps not. No. Uh, and, and things such as lettuce. 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 Right, okay. Frozen vegetables. Okay. Eggs. Yes. Now, this is not Mrs. Yes. Sedgwick's weekly shop, I can assure you. Right. These are key issues of great concern to every one of our viewers. Yes, they are. They are. Yes, they are. I know. And, yes, and, they are. And, and where are we going with this? We, well, I'll tell you where we're going with it. <laughs> yeah. We're going with the latest Prices CPI are going up, right? Prices yeah. are going up. And do you know what? Too many yeah. buffoons in the herd of economics oh. have told us it's all about transitory. Mm. It's all about energy costs. It's all about supply chain issues. Yes. Um, well, it's not, is it? Because when lettuce is up 17.2%, yes. when frozen vegetables are up 18.6%, when eggs are up 70, 70%, 70 percent, 70.1 to be precise, butter and margarine, 32.5%. Mm. Now, mm. none of those in themselves are the major constituents of the CPI. But when there are other really sticky areas, such as rent of primary residence, up 8.6%. The other lodging away from home, up 8.5%. The public transportation, up 17.1% as well. Motor vehicle repair, yeah. Up 23.1%. I don't mean to scare the horses on this one, but there are still, across many parts of the US economy, vast areas of sticky and high inflation. So for someone out there to tell us it's just transitory, it's just because of that supply chain, I turn around to them and say, look at the breakdown. There are a whole host of issues across the United States which are proving sticky and which mean, of course, that the inflation level is proving a stubbornly high problem, not only for the market, but of course for those Federal Reserve members who keep saying, let's stay the course. Yeah, and why have we launched in right off the top of the programme with this angle? It is because, I think, Rabobank asking the important question this morning, where should financial assets trade globally if inflation continues to remain above target? And if you look at the behaviour of the equity markets and other interest rate sensitive assets, 
they have continued to defy the argument that the Fed will grind higher than the predetermined peak rate on interest rates. So there is a disconnection between the market's belief in where inflation is ultimately going and what that means for the terminal rate and what that means for the value of equities and bonds and gold and cash and other asset classes. So it's a very, very, very important issue. Yeah. Um, I didn't mention cereal and bakery products up 15.6%, but I'll tell you what, why don't I stop going into the detail and you do the reading and we've got a guest coming. (laughs) Okay. Well, if anybody missed the numbers yesterday, let's backfill for you for a moment. US inflation eased a little in January, but CPI still came in hotter than expected at 6.4% higher on the year compared to December's 6.5% uptick. The monthly number coming in at 0.5%, up 40 basis points in December, raising concerns that inflation could be stickier than previously thought. Now, rents, food and energy drove gains, with food prices alone up more than 10% in the year. Uh, Shelter costs rose 70 basis points on the month, accounting for nearly half of the CPI gain. What about the reaction? Well, Tuesday's data release spurred Fed officials to get out and say pretty much the same thing. I hate to say it, everybody. Fed officials again hinting at a higher than previously expected terminal rate. New York Fed President John Williams suggesting that a federal funds rate between five and five and a half percent by the end of the year by the end of the year, seemed, quote, uh, the right kind of framing, bearing in mind that uh, the 10 years telling us that we think there's going to be cuts by the end of the year. Well, that just doesn't look like the case at the moment, does it, everybody? Dallas Fed President Laurie Logan said tightness in the labour market meant Fed officials needed to be prepared to continue for longer than previously anticipated. In an exclusive interview, exclusive After the inflation figures were released, the Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan told CNBC that continued healthy spending is one of the key reasons the bank moved its recession forecast a quarter further out. Consumers are in pretty good shape. They have money in accounts. They have a capacity to borrow. They have, they're employed, you know, three three and a half percent unemployment rate plus or minus. The wage growth is still relatively strong. Inflation is tough on people who are the rate of goods is going, exceeding their wage growth. Um, and that should come back in line as, as they choke it down. But overall, the consumer is in very good shape. Right, let's move from lettuce to markets. Some would say that the lettuce makes more sense sometimes. Uh, wasn't it a lettuce they had up against Liz Truss to see yes, which lasted longer? Yes, the and the lettuce star, won, right? And the lettuce won <laughs> yeah. as well. Okay. Well, will the lettuce win through or will the market win through? That's what I want to... Uh, we told you something that wasn't true. We told you the Nasdaq was the only market that was in positive territory. Wasn't true. The Dow transports were up 1.1%, you know. So actually it was rather mixed and rather nuanced as well. The market really didn't know what to make of this in many ways as well. Uh, So the Dow in the end ended up five tenths of 1% lower. I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, after quite a volatile session, that's not a bad outcome for a figure that was higher than many people had expected. Yes, it came off from 6.5% in December for the headline figure as well. And yet, and yet, you wanted 6.2%. When I say you, I mean Mr. and Mrs. Long Market, if there is such a thing. Um, S&P, flat as a pancake on the back of it. What about Treasuries? Well, I, I'll show you the, the, the pit of the curve we normally show you, then I'll show you something even more interesting than that. Because look at this, the two-year, once again pulling up in terms of the yield, the underlying going down. Uh, and yes, we saw a similar story on the 10-year trading at some of its most recent high levels, 37 
4.44%, but it's at the two-year where people, things are getting interesting at 4.61. What is even more interesting is this, and that's the six-month treasuries as well, which have now got a mighty 5.04% yield on that. So look at the inversion between the six-month at over 5% and the 10-year at 3.744, as I said, or whatever it was. Anyway, dollar crosses, let's have a look. See, did the dollar rally on the back of this? Uh, not massively, but a bit, yes. Look, 121.48 cable, euro-dollar pair 107. Uh, the dollar yen, dollar gaining ground. Now, we don't know what to make of Mr. Ueda, do we? We really don't know what to make of this academic who will potentially take over from Kuroda san as well as the official nominee there. But safe to say, the dollar, once again, on the front foot, uh, 133. Dollar yuan trading 6.85. Okay, Asian indices are trading thus down across the board. Hang Seng is the notable decliner there, 1.6% easier. And in fact, the ASX 200 also losing over 1%. Opening calls for European markets. I haven't even seen these today. You're looking at them before me because I'm going to turn around there and have a look. There we go. We are called lower. Uh, again, markets did come off. The FTSE, for instance, was up, I think, six points by the close, but it had tried, had flirted with 8,000 once again. Mr. Cutmore. Yeah, thanks very much indeed. Let's get some analysis then on the latest numbers on inflation. Sarang Kulkani joins us, Portfolio Manager, Investment Grade Credit at Vanguard. Um, Sarang, good morning and welcome. Um, we were talking a little bit about the inflation print and what it means for stickier inflation uh, going forward and what that ultimately means for different asset classes. How does it change your world? Good morning. Um, yes, all this talk of cereal and eggs is making me hungry. But I think, you know, when you, when we look at uh, how the economy could sort of play out, and especially through the lens of our active funds, we do find ourselves at, you know, a crossroad. And you've got three potential scenarios. One is inflation doesn't fall the way central banks wanted it to. And that brings back, you know, more than expected hawkishness. What we might see is like a repeat of last year. Uh, the other one is the no landing scenario in which, you know, growth stays fine and, um, you know, inflation starts to roll over. However, both of these scenarios, we tend to sort of discount a bit. Now, base case scenario of like what should play out is the button is gradually shifting away from um, inflation and into growth. And growth, you know, on the surface has seemed reasonably strong and people have really not been that concerned about it. But when we actually, our analysis of the U.S. consumer, you know, on the, with reference to the, the clip you played earlier, definitely shows that while overall the consumer is strong, there are segments within uh, the consumer that is actually not getting very stretched and that just start to play out. The other impact that we've seen is like high inflation has helped companies keep their margins high. And as inflation falls over and as wage bills start to rise, company margins are going to get squeezed and that will you know, contribute to a rise in you know, unemployment and an unwinding of all the kind of like the, the perfect conditions that we've seen for the last three or four months. So in terms of you know, what this means for inflation is it's the weaker growth that will continue to sort of like bring inflation down. So that's our base case scenario. How are you playing that through the portfolio? Uh, I mean, in terms of uh, our active funds, you know, what we are doing is we definitely have a stronger, stronger preference for non-cyclical companies compared to cyclical companies. Uh, we are looking for companies that have like strong business models and have the ability to sort of like, you know, pass through prices and, uh, you know, maintain their margins more or less where they are. And in the case of like cyclical companies, because you might see some top line pressure with falling inflation, 
you know, what you would expect to see is if you have high operating leverage or high financial leverage, then that's going to start telling on the bottom line. So we're looking for companies that have sort of low gearing overall and really stable business models. Yeah. Overall, in terms of like, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 sorry, sorry. I thought you finished. Please carry on, sir. I was going to say overall in terms of like different asset classes. I mean, you know, the last time I was on the show in October, we were talking about risk premium and how you had like a big repricing of risk premium in um, in 2022. Now we've given a lot of that back and risk premium are not that attractive across asset classes as they were in October. However, we still like high quality fixed income here um, because, you know, we think the correction that you've seen um is probably better than what you've seen in other asset classes. And so, you know, it's it's choosing amongst the, the places where you kind of think, depending on what scenario plays out, you kind of like have the best, uh, you know, premium that's being paid for you, You the, where you can earn some good carry, and where the upside and downside is sort of skewed slightly in your favor. So, you know, high quality fixed income, again, is like something that we prefer. Sarang, um, lovely to, uh, to speak to you as ever, sir. Look, I, I get it. Five and a half percent for your average IG credit in the US. It looks tantalizing compared to the couple of percent that we were parceled out with for most of the last couple of decades. But the fact of the matter is, um, greedy managers and ones who are looking for the best possible yields will perhaps eye the highs of last year. And that was over six percent, six and a half percent. As much as you are an IG credit portfolio manager, are our viewers better off just waiting actually for another percent? It, you know, as I said, we are at this crossroad. You know, if you have like complete clarity on what would be happening with the yields and what would be happening with markets, then of course that's the best thing to do. But timing the markets, as you know, is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, in the one scenario where things don't pan out to be as bad as you would think, then this five and a half percent yield is going to be reasonably good and that carry is going to be you know better than what you might get on other asset classes so if you stay in this sort of like flatlining sort of scenario carry is going to be your biggest driver of returns Sarang, so, I hate to say it, but the um, the ratings agencies have got a bit of a checkered past in spotting companies that perhaps shouldn't be IG and perhaps should be a little bit further down the curve. Do you have any concerns about the investment grades given to uh, any part of the curve at the moment? And dare I say it, right down to the bit where things are investment or investable that actually should be junk. <laughs> We're at this point in the cycle, yes. And, you know, there definitely will be some names that, you know, migrate down from investment grade to high yield. Um, but for us, like, everything we do is based on our own fundamental research. So, you know, we take what the rating agencies say and we supplement that with our own research. Um, so, you know, like every good IG manager, we're trying to avoid these names as much as possible. Um, but at the end of the day, like, companies still have tools available at their disposal. I mean, the initial steps are obviously going to be cost cutting. You know, that's why we think that's the first thing that people will do to protect their margins. Uh, that's not good for the employment picture going forward. But they also can, you know, raise further equity. They can sell assets. And you can see a lot of companies doing that to actually, uh, you know, maintain their investment grade rating. The drop at the moment between IG and high yield probably isn't that big high yield has actually held up reasonably well but if you look at the convexity of the asset class i think is definitely skewed towards the downside so as time goes by you know the incentive to stay investment grade through you know 
any means possible is going to be going up. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. TSMC shares traded sharply lower in Taiwan today after Berkshire Hathaway revealed it slashed its stake in the world's largest chip maker by more than 50 million shares or 86% of its holding. It marks a rapid turnaround for Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, which took a $4.1 billion position just months ago. It now holds uh, just 8.3 million shares in the company. Berkshire also slashed stakes in U.S. banks, trimming its position in BNY Mellon by 60% and U.S. Bancorp by 90%. Mr. Buffett continued to trim his position in Activision Blizzard, down by 12% in the quarter. But the bet is still the conglomerate's ninth largest. The 92-year-old investor kept the majority of his top 10 holdings unchanged last quarter, but did slightly add, yes, you guessed it, to his Apple stake. Well, Christina Patsinavelos filed this report. Berkshire Hathaway's 13F revealing it cut its stake in Taiwan Semiconductor by 86% as of Q4 of last year. It's quite a change given Berkshire bought 60 million new TSMC shares in Q3, making TSMC one of its top 10 holdings. But that was no longer the case in Q4. Often we kind of see these quick moves in and out of a stock from hedge funds less common among Berkshire Hathaway positions. The stock reacted negatively when the news first came out in after hours. Sticking with semiconductors, several funds showed an interest in the sector. You had Philippe Lafont's Cotu that boosted its stake in AMD, Applied Materials and NVIDIA while decreasing its exposure to LAM Research and Dutch equipment maker ASML. American investment firm D1 also dissolved its position in ASML. Viking Global's 13F showed increased exposure to Micron and Cadence Design, which, by the way, just posted its earnings earlier this week, while Ray Dalio's Bridgewater Associates cut its Corvo, Qualcomm, and Skyworks stake by over 80% in Q4 of last year. Another popular name among the 13F filings was Salesforce, with five known activists in the stock. You have Starboard filing that revealed it held 3 million shares, Value Act over half a million, Inclusive Capital 1.6 million, all just within Q4. Elliott Management, as well as Third Point Capital, rounding up the group in Salesforce, but the size of those positions is still unknown. Keep in mind that 13F filings provide an update on Q4 holdings, and they may have changed in the last six weeks. For CNBC Business News, I'm Christina Partsinevelis. Very interesting. Yes. Yes. Um, I just wanted to throw in a, a, what, what I thought was interesting, the difference in um, technology holding adjustments, Vs, businesses that offer experiences. And that was the most obvious thing that stuck out to me. Um, when you look at Tiger Global Management, um, they cut stakes in Microsoft, Workday, Drawdown in JD.com, dumped more than half its stake in ServiceNow. When you looked at um, Berkshire Hathaway, um, obviously increased uh, the stake in Apple, but um, Paramount Global was something that he uh, increased the stake in. But David Tepper, Disney, Caesars Entertainment. 
So right. a whole, whole, you know, you, you look at these um, and obviously each of them have their own idiosyncratic reason for being bought by the particular fund manager. But I think there is, there is some evident trend to own companies that offer experiences rather than goods at this time. And obviously one of the few areas where we're seeing disinflation seems to be in hardware. Right. Yeah. Um, so what, what good can come of whale watching? And the only reason I say this is because I, I was <clears throat> just doing a bit of perusing on this one as well. <clears throat> and I found an article which said um, Jim Cramer, our own very Jim Cramer, says that whale watching is nonsense. Right. And I looked at the date on this article. I thought it'd be you know, now, maybe last year. Right. He, he said that in 2013. So I'd love to know if our very good friend Jim has changed his view on this. And I kind of, I'll just go with this a little bit because he said the obsession with this stuff is nonsense. Again, this is Jim talking 10 years ago. Now mm. I know, mm. and basically he was saying that the problem, people obsess over this stuff. But actually, why should this form your opinion? First and foremost, they're backward looking. They reflect the stock that these billionaires thought were relevant at the end of last quarter, but that may not be the same anymore, that may not even hold them in the current quarter. And perhaps worst of all, this is the article from 2013, there is no explanation for the reasons behind the buying or selling in the filing. Um, this makes this stuff totally misleading. And I think that's actually really quite an important caveat to whale watching. Um, well, a couple of things. One is uh, Jim is a whale himself, I would think, for a lot of people. And he doesn't seem to hold back from offering recommendations on a daily basis, uh, which no doubt... On his current holdings. Uh, 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 or I current expectations. I, I would imagine so. Yeah. I would imagine so. I mean, he, Which he, makes it more relevant in many he, ways. He's got to have, he's I own, have conviction. He's got to have conviction. I own right? X or I recommend X, therefore I'm saying it now, rather than these gentlemen and ladies owned right. X a quarter ago right. or in but their uh, previous uh, file. Well, you know, um, look. But the time-sensitive nature of it is actually quite an important point. Uh, well, you can, you can d completely disregard it. Why not? But I think there is value mm. in understanding the broader trends that a lot of these managers are following. I mean, Ber Berkshire Hathaway um, and some of these other um, large whales, they, they are not dilettante investors. No. They have a fundamental underlying strategy which they pursue. And I think um, Warren Buffett has made it very clear over the years that he believes that it is important to try and find value and own value because he believes value will outperform over the long run. And it's difficult to argue with that if you buy something for less than it ultimately becomes worth and then you sell it, then you're gonna make money from that strategy. Yeah. It's different from trend following, it's different from algorithmic investing and so on and so forth. So I think in, in his situation, it is interesting I'm not saying you should rush out and own these and stocks. And I'm not saying you shouldn't look at them. But I think you should look at them because yeah. over time they give you an insight into the manager's mindset that you don't get from just knowing that they are a long-term value investor. So it's how it's expressed in the individual ownership of certain stocks where I think you can find some more depth and some more understanding about the strategy. That, yeah. would, that would be my take on yeah. it anyway. But I do understand the point that you're making. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. But, I'm just uh, trying to make some telly. Oh, well, really. No, but, but, um, but <laughs> no, I think I it's, it's fair. I mean, we do, no. this, we do this every quarter. No, 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 absolutely. And uh, I think it's valid to, 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 to try and uh, apply the electrodes do you know what I want and to test to see Ooh. whether it is a valid strategy. I beg your pardon. Where, you, I, where I, are you applying said aforementioned electrodes? Look, 
I'm look, so come, come back to your inflation point. We have had reams of copy yes, from economists yep. who have no skin in the game, effectively, arguing with conviction a particular perspective. Yeah. I would actually accept that the data is going to be a quarter late for the fact that I know that these people are putting real money into their investment decisions. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.